Ischemic stroke and acute coronary syndromes are both caused by arterial occlusion, even though the pathology may be different. In both syndromes, speed of treatment is critical and has a direct impact on the patient's outcome. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today we're speaking with Dr. Michael Hill, Neurologist and Director of the Stroke Unit at the Foothills Hospital in Calgary and Associate Professor of Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Calgary. In a recent article published in CMAJ, Dr. Hill and his colleagues reviewed the diagnosis and management of acute ischemic stroke and compare and contrast its treatment with that of acute coronary syndrome as a way to highlight the importance of speed in treatment to improve outcomes in stroke. Hello, Michael. Good morning. Can you take us briefly through the differences and similarities between ischemic stroke and acute coronary syndrome in terms of pathology and what may have caused the occlusion? Sure. The key similarities are that they both represent pathologies where a major artery is blocked. So in the heart, an acute myocardial infarction is due to an acute blockage of an epicardial coronary artery. And in ischemic stroke, the same is true, uh, except that it's an acute occlusion of an intracranial. There, however, a lot of differences begin to emerge between the two syndromes. The underlying pathology in coronary artery occlusions is 95 times out of 100 due to atherosclerotic disease of the coronary artery with an in situ rupture of a plaque and then thrombus on the plaque occluding the artery. Of course, there are rarer causes of coronary occlusion as well, including dissection or even embolus. In contrast, and in distinct contrast, in the brain, there are multiple different mechanisms and it's actually quite unusual to have in situ thrombus on a ruptured atherosclerotic plaque. Most commonly, brain artery occlusions are due to embolism. A clot starts somewhere else and then is distributed into the brain from the forward flow of the blood. The common mechanisms would include cardioembolic stroke, and most people, most listeners would be certainly familiar with atrial fibrillation as a strong cause of cardioembolic stroke. There are others, of course, including valvular heart disease or mural thrombus in the heart after a myocardial infarction. So there's a relationship there. Another important cause is atherosclerotic disease in the extracranial uh, carotid or vertebral arteries. In this situation, the mechanisms are similar in the sense that a plaque rupture occurs, thrombus occurs on the plaque, but it's not the occlusion of the artery that's the relevant event because the, a piece of the thrombus embolizes distally into the intracranial circulation and causes occlusion. So while the two syndromes are very similar because they're due to acute occlusions of, a, of an artery, the underlying mechanism is different. They come back together again in terms of similarities in the need for speed of treatment. Both conditions are uh, medical emergencies, and in these kind of situations, minutes matter. We know that, uh, certainly know that in, in acute myocardial infarction, the time to administration of a thrombolytic is a critical determinant of outcome or the time to initiation of endovascular therapy with angioplasty and stenting in the coronary circulation is a critical determinant of outcome. The same applies in stroke. We have to get the artery open at great speed to achieve a good outcome. And there are now two complementary ways to do it in stroke. And, and one is to give a thrombolytic medicine. TPA was the, is the one that's traditionally used. And uh, more recently, it's been shown that endovascular therapy works But again, because the underlying mechanisms are different, it's not angioplasty and stenting like you do in the coronaries. 
its thrombectomy or removal of the clot. There are tremendous similarities, but the underlying pathologies are different, and that results in differences, some differences in treatments. And in your article, you speak about differences in diagnosis, and that diagnosis is the key difference that has driven treatment in each of these syndromes, and perhaps the reason why stroke has lagged behind coronary syndromes in our ability to treat them fast. Yeah, historically, it's, it's interesting that in one of the first published cases of intra-arterial delivery of thrombolytics in the coronary circulation, in the heart, was published in 1957. And then similarly, the next year, an angiogram-directed intracranial delivery of fibrinolytic agent was, was published in 1958. But it took a long, long time before it became mainstream. There were you know, two disasters in, in that case series, and, and that's in large part because of the technology needed to develop for us to see the brain. So whereas in the heart, the ECG with ST elevation became the guiding uh, diagnostic modality, and it was available early and uh, much earlier than stroke, it was imaging, CT imaging or MR imaging that is the mainstay, which helps us decide if someone is an eligible candidate for acute treatment to reopen an intracranial artery. In stroke imaging is is the biomarker, and so it, we don't have an ECG equivalent, and we don't have a troponin equivalent in stroke. So we have to use imaging, and we have to learn how to use imaging to make decisions about who should get thrombolyzed or who should have endovascular treatment. And a CT scan is no small piece of equipment. Do you find that services have developed now to be able to bring CT scanning into an earlier part of the treatment cycle? Yeah, I think uh, most major hospitals, certainly, certainly in Canada, that's true. In most major hospitals, CT scans are available. Most people have now much better access to MRI compared to even five years ago. So the machines are available. You're right. They're not cheap. You know, a typical CT installation will be in the $1 to $2 million range. And so they are going to be based at, at major hospitals. There are developments towards mobile CT scanning and CT scans being placed in ambulances. But to prove the efficacy and utility of this is going to take some more time. I think it's not true to say that the CT scans are not available. What's not, what's much less available is expertise to interpret the imaging and in some hospitals a willingness to use them acutely. So there's a, there still needs to be a an understanding that this is a medical emergency and in the same way that you would get an ECG in five minutes, you need to be able to move to the CT scanner and get a CT scan of the head in five minutes. So I think the medical profession and the public in general know very well the signs and symptoms of an acute ischemic event when it's cardiovascular, but what about for stroke? What are the signs and symptoms that are important to look for? Yeah, I think uh, the medical profession, you know, gets taught this, and and we we tend to know it. We tend to know it well. Uh, the public is much much less aware. I don't know all the numbers for hearts, but certainly in stroke, you know, not even half of the population can name a symptom of stroke. So, the ones that we teach are based on uh, a widely used acronym around the world called FAST: face, arm, speech, and time. And the idea is that uh, if someone has motor or speech symptoms, acute motor or speech symptoms, most likely they're having their, you know, they're just at the beginning of an acute, acute stroke. So the big ones are unilateral weakness, uh, speech disturbance, whether it's dysarthria or aphasia, and then vision, uh, change in vision, usually hemianopia being the, the main vision loss. 
Of course, as all, all listeners will know, there's multiple ancillary symptoms depending on what region of the brain is affected. We teach the FAST acronym just because, statistically speaking, the most common artery involved is the middle cerebral artery or the anterior circulation. And in that situation, it is the, it is the motor and speech symptoms that become dominant statistically doesn't mean that you shouldn't also look out for people with you know acute uh, imbalance in coordination changes in level of consciousness just you know disconjugate eyes and stuff that would indicate a posterior circulation stroke but that's where the training comes in and that's where experience is really important have we done enough of a public health program in this country to educate the public about the symptoms of stroke no it's an ongoing thing though right i mean all the public literacy in health obviously depends upon multiple understanding multiple things. I mean, we we argue about vitamin D, and now there's stuff in the paper about whether we should be drinking milk, and and then there's vaccination and all kinds of health issues. And stroke is a uh, and 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 heart attacks are just one competing part of that scene. Given that treatment, however, is so time dependent for both conditions, we do need to have people out there who know what they're doing and know and know what to look for. A really interesting comment about both strokes and heart attacks is that a lot of times, certainly it's true in stroke, it's also true a lot of times, but not all the time in heart attacks. But in stroke, most times when we see patients in the emergency department, it's not the patient who has called the paramedics or activated a call for help. And the reason is that stroke renders you as the patient incapable of causing your stroke. It renders you with incapacity. You can't get to the phone. You can't talk on the phone. So if you know the symptoms of stroke, you know them mostly and you're helping mostly other people. You're going to help your mother or your father or your daughter or son or etc. You know, your comment is well taken because if we can teach the public and the public has increased literacy of stroke, We'll see more people, more bystanders, more family members getting help when they can't get, get help for themselves. So we've had a conversation about this before, and, and I think that when we spoke about it, you have said that decades ago, strokes didn't do well afterwards. So it was always a case of rehabilitation and disability after stroke, whereas now we can have a very good outcome indeed. There have been in the last... 10 to 15 years, terrific advances in stroke care. We've made great advances in Canada. Some of our, our data uh, based on you know, a, a strong strategy called the Canadian Stroke Strategy the, and the evolution of provincial stroke strategies has resulted in declining mortality from stroke in this country. And so we're, we're in a very strong position in Canada to really make the argument that we are making a difference in stroke care. So getting that information out to the public would be very important. Talk me through the evolution of stroke care in Canada and in the provincial realm. Well, I think technology was a key factor uh, in terms of the evolution of CT scanning. CT scans were developed in the 1970s and gradually came to penetrance in hospitals uh, over time. As we talked, as we said earlier, it was, it's an investment in a, in a capital investment in infrastructure. MRI scans became the next step. It's taken a long time for us to develop one of the apparently simplest things for, for uh, stroke care, and those are stroke units. Data from Europe in particular have shown that caring for people in a specialized unit results in better outcomes, less people dependent, less people 
uh, going to nursing homes and reduced uh, reduced mortality. Uh, yet a lot of major hospitals do not have a dedicated stroke unit, and a stroke unit means a dedicated ward, right? Where or a dedicated section of a ward where you're taking care of stroke patients with nurses and allied health staff, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists, and physicians who develop the expertise in taking care of stroke and prevent complications. Those units are gradually becoming more prevalent in the country. In 1995, we had the first uh, randomized trial evidence that thrombolytic therapy could be used in highly selected patients, selected by imaging and, and, the, and, and fast treatment. And then there's been a gradual evolution of thrombolytic therapy, greater and greater penetrance. The proportion of people who are, have access to thrombolytic therapy has gone up. And you see in Canada that whereas we started at just 1% to 2% of patients receiving intravenous thrombolytic therapy, we're getting up to the range of about 15% now in many major hospitals, probably with a maximum ceiling of about 20% of eligible patients. Only 20% of patients might even be eligible for therapy. So we're getting close to a maximum, and that's and that's pretty important, right? That's a, that's a tremendous evolution of care. And then finally, just in the last year, we've had the demonstration that endovascular treatment is a, a viable therapy and shows re, uh, substantial reductions in, in mor morbidity and mortality. We played a big role in that in Canada in leading one of the trials that has shown that outcome. And so we're now in the, in the midst of, again, thinking about how to move the selected patients who would be eligible for this therapy to the right place to get that kind of treatment. This has all been dominated by, by evolutions of care proven in, in clinical trials, but there have been policy changes too, and um, I have to give credit and um, foresight to the Canadian Stroke Network, which was a, an NCE program, um, which is a, a large federal grant, National Centers of Excellence Program, and the Heart and Stroke Foundation partnered together to form the Canadian Stroke Strategy, and that's about 10 years ago now, and with a, with a goal simply on trying to improve patient care by um, lobbying for change in policy. And that meant federal policy, but more, more importantly, provincial policy about making stroke a focus of uh, provincial health care. And uh, certainly about half the provinces so far have really embraced that. And we see that it's making a difference, that we have declining mortality from from stroke in this country and um, declining disability. You say in your paper that for every minute of delay after cerebral artery occlusion, 1.9 million neurons, 14 billion synapses, and 12 kilometers of myelinated fibers are destroyed. Are we doing everything we can in our healthcare system to provide the most rapid door to treatment time for our stroke patients? I think the, the important thing to recognize is that there's still tons to do. It's still true that disability, that stroke is still the major cause of uh, adult onset disability. It's still very, very expensive to care for a disabled adult. It still results in a lot of untimely death for the Canadian public. And so it's it's not over. It's uh, I painted a positive message insofar as we've made a lot of gains, but we were starting from a very, very low point. You know, a major stroke uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, was just simply not treated. And uh, if you survived the first month then you survived long enough to have disability and then whether or not you recovered was to a great extent um, dependent on a bit of luck and, uh, and the attention of your rehabilitation team. So there's a long way to go still. We've been speaking with Dr. Michael Hill, Director of the Stroke Unit at the Foothills Hospital and Associate Professor of Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Calgary. 
To read the review article he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.